0: Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, editor in chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and with managing editor and good friend, Richard Hill. Howdy, Richard.
0: Howdy, Matt. Here we are, uh, uh, getting on now into the latter part of October. I can't believe it, but it's a wonderful yep. thing. The uh, I don't know about uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, you're probably getting a bit chilly, but we're actually starting to warm up here. It's rather yes.
1: nice. Everything's growing. Mm. Yeah,
0: yes, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I am so glad not to own a lawn. Oh, <laughs> oh. Concerned. Well, Sorry about
1: a, you. I have uh, We have a big property with lots of lawn and trees and everything, and it's all coming to life. It's wonderful. Well, that's beautiful. But today, we
0: have got, uh, where are we going? We're going off to the Bay Area, so San Francisco mm-hmm. over in the States, to talk to a very interesting uh, woman who's doing some fantastically interesting approaches and works. Uh, anyway, tell us a bit about her, Matt. Okay, we're going across to talk to Dr. Abigail Lev
1: and she's a licensed clinical psychologist in California and a certified mediator and she specializes in integrating acceptance and commitment therapy and schema therapy to address interpersonal problems and Unhelpful patterns in
0: relationships. Yeah, and I think this sense of relationships is something we we always have to come back to. But I like the way she talks about relationships with the term interpersonal. So mm. it's not mm. just like and we because we sometimes think of relationship as a love relationship or this. It's just our engagement with the other, and you'll uh, you know hopefully we we'll, we'll be able to enter and engage and resolve and sort out a lot of interesting ground on that area. Absolutely. But before we jump
1: across to there, let me thank you, first of all, for tuning in to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And if you appreciate what we do here, we would love your support over at the scienceofpsychotherapy.net which is our academy site. And we'd love you to become a subscriber.
0: And we've just released uh, the first of our Science of Us documentaries, hmm. which is this one is on the gut-brain axis. And we talk to scientists, we talk to practitioners, we really look into the science of what we need to know and how we can use this. And these documentaries are, uh, I must admit, I'm doing the narration, but (laughs) Matt, you're doing the filming and the filming is just world standard. It's absolutely fantastic. So jump in on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's been a lot of fun making these and we hope it's of good value to our subscribers. So Richard, let's go across to the United States of America. Dr. Abigail Lev, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science
0: of Psychotherapy podcast.
1: Welcome.
2: Thank you. I'm I'm happy to be here.
0: And uh, Richard here of course, uh, lovely to meet you. We're very excited we 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 certainly we we got uh information about your books and we'll talk about all those sorts of things, but just the the general work you do is 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 very exciting for us and so Maybe we could just start. We've given you a bit of an introduction, but just a few uh, a few insights into yourself. You've you've been a co author. Just a couple of things of what's brought you to this point where you are now.
2: Uh, yeah, I integrate. So all of the books that I've written have been about integrating schema therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. And schema therapy is about schemas, which is core beliefs. And so I help people work with the core beliefs that show up for them in relationships and can create a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if I have a core belief, for example, of abandonment that people will leave me in relationships, I've developed certain behaviors that I do to avoid the pain of abandonment, which often those behaviors lead to the same abandonment that I fear. So I integrate these two therapies. And I'm also I'm the director of the Bay Area CBT Center, which is a clinic in San Francisco. And I have a group practice with several other therapists. And we're all very close. And we make sure to challenge each other and, and hold each other accountable, because I think that's important. And I'm also the founder of CBT Online. Uh, and that is more for online therapy, and also for tools with CBT and worksheets and videos and and kind of resources for people to understand uh, cognitive behavioral therapy better.
0: I look at that when I I see you you what are you early forties or just just coming up forty, uh, you know you've been fabulously busy, very engaged in your experience, but I. Uh, I have a, a feeling from looking at your biography and talking about some of the things that you you come across. and I want to talk about something specific in a minute, but it hasn't always been that easy. Have you always? I don't know. I get the feeling you're a you're a fighter. I mean, uh, in a very positive <laughs> way. Uh, you know, you're you're sort of the, the world. You don't wait for the world to come to you. What what's is there a story behind that? What am I picking up?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I have this assumption that all of us are a bit of fighters, right? But I was I was born in Israel, and I moved to the United States when I was about 10. And I, I didn't speak any English, so I had a bit of a, a social alienation schema, if I had to choose a schema. Yeah. And kind of this feeling of being different and unbelonging and needing to learn the culture and the language. So certainly that was a part of me wanting to understand people and human behavior and what, what makes people happy. Yeah. So I, I I definitely struggled with with feelings of unbelonging and 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 sadness for sure. Yeah, yeah. you use use
0: a term in in uh, some of this stuff of of learning how to be neutral. Uh am I understand is that uh I, I, I know there was another I know we we got a little catchphrase from uh when we look at some of this stuff learning how to be neutral in a world of toxic positivity. Uh uh that's because you came from Israel, which is certainly a very positive nation, but to America, which is which is almost the land of um, you know positivity to a fault. Uh, could you explain a little bit about this term uh, being neutral?
2: Yeah, well, I think uh, being neutral is more specific for like as a therapist. So as a therapist, I think that it's really important to uh. not lead the client. Um, so, uh, you know all of us therapists, we have certain ideas about what the right thing for a client to do or what their values should be or the choices they should make. But as a therapist, it's really important to you know work in a framework that allows the client to choose their values and their choices and, and the way that they make their decisions. I think as a therapist, that's really important. In, in relation to toxic positivity, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, the therapy that I do act, it's based on the notion that we are not here to help clients get rid of difficult emotions, like uh, difficult thoughts, feelings, sensations, like internal experiences that feel difficult. You know, our goal is not to get rid of those, but our goal is to change our relationship to those experiences so that they no longer have the same control or influence over our behaviors. But the, the dilemma is that we kind of live in a society that sends us a lot of mixed messages about what is in our control and what is not in our control. So when we live in a society that says things like, don't worry about it, calm down, relax, then we we get this idea that we should be able to just control these things, right? But if, if a lion walks into my house right now, I should be able to control my physiological sensations of fight or flight. I should just be calm about the lion. and And I think that that causes a lot of human suffering. when When we think when we try to control the things that are out of our control, or when we uh, you know think that we that something is out of our control that we could really change, those are the two ways that we get caught up in a lot of suffering. So so coming back to the
1: therapist, when you say being neutral as a therapist, uh, what you're getting at is not being overly positive. Is that, is that what I'm hearing?
2: Well, there's, there's two pieces. Uh, There's the piece about not being biased. So, you know, if I'm sitting with a Trump supporter, for example, uh, not indirectly being like, hmm, you know, is this is this really consistent with your values? So being neutral in the sense of not leaking out my own values and morals on my clients, mm-hmm. but having um kind of a map that helps them become the expert in their own experience. Like I'm the expert in psychology, but each client is an expert in their own their values, their needs, their experiences, and their decisions. And so it's really important for for therapists to be neutral in that way. The toxic positivity piece is uh, helping, helping clients be able to dismantle and see how the system uh, and certain ideas that we get sold are not are, are not really accurate. Like that's not really the you know we don't really learn in school, for example, how to identify our feelings and, and needs. And so the, the the dilemma is that we have a lot of uh, mixed messages in our society about these kinds of things. Like we learn about. We learn algebra and calculus, things that we don't actually need, but we don't learn right the important stuff about relationships and how to get our needs met and how to communicate effectively. And one big barrier in society, especially American society is this idea that negative feelings or even that feelings are bad and good. Like there are feelings that are bad and there are feelings that are good. Uh There are sensations that are bad and there are sensations that are good. And part of therapy should be to keep all of the good positive feelings and get rid of all these negative thoughts and feelings. But in the reality of things, all feelings are feelings. All feelings are information about what we need, um, about our values, about how to move forward in life. Every piece of internal experience is a guide for what we want our lives to be about. And yet we live in a society that tells us to ignore and avoid these things. Uh, how do we live a valued life and a fulfilling life if we're not listening to our internal experiences?
0: Yes, that, that that business thing of teaching them to say, "I feel fabulous," right? Uh, and, right. um and uh, or, or that actually even bringing it a bit more normal, uh, normalizing. You know, when you go in to see your doctor, I always find this amusing thing. And you know, "Hello, doctor," and the doctor says, uh, "Oh, hello, how are you?" And you say, "Well, oh, I'm fine, thank you." And then they sit down and say, "And what do you hear?" "Oh, I've got this, and I feel sick." <laughs> no. Right. We, we get caught up in these sort of things. Yeah. <laughs>
2: It's it's so funny that you said that because when I came back from Australia, the first thing I told all my friends was, you know, in Australia, when they ask you how you're doing, they actually listen to what comes next. <laughs> and you can go, I feel really anxious today. And they're like, oh, what's going on? It's completely different. Like here in America, it's how are you? Good. How are you? I mean, you don't even listen to the response. You're not even present with
0: it. Yeah, we get excited about what if there's something wrong with you.
2: Oh, you're in a really bad way. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: <laughs> Tell us all about it. You know, I mean, got a lot of shade and frown here. But, so, so, that,
1: so there is a real cultural bias that um, that we need to overcome because uh, people that are not trained in psychology or, or therapy, you know, they will naturally respond sitting down with a, a you know, having a, a, a cuppa with a, a friend. Um, it, there will always be that encouragement to, you know, it, it's, a, it's okay. It's not as bad as you think. And and so this is the cultural bias that we all have to sort of overcome.
0: Yeah, sometimes it is as bad as they think, isn't it?
2: That's exactly it. Sometimes mm. it really is that bad. And, and the dilemma is that, you know, if you check in with your own experience and think about the last time you were, like, anxious or upset, uh, if somebody would say relax like when has that ever worked right like who has ever been like oh like this and then somebody goes relax and then you go wow I feel so much better Thank I never thought, never thought of that right so it's like it just doesn't work so if we're getting the message that that should work then when we're all anxious we're telling ourselves relax don't worry about it why am I upset I shouldn't be that upset is it because I didn't have enough coffee is it because I had too much coffee is it because I don't have enough friends is it because of the right and we're just trying to figure and solve something instead of just recognizing that we're having an experience, we're a human being and we could make space. Uh, it doesn't have to be negative. it doesn't have to be bad. it can be something to be curious about and to notice.
1: Yeah, so there's a, there's a word curious because I know that's Richard would say instead of saying don't worry about that, uh, he would say, well, let's be a little curious about that and yeah. look into it.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. Oh, there you go. Everything's interesting. But what, what it's interesting as I listen here, because I've been doing some uh, other work, and also it's it's very a loud bit of conversation at the moment, is uh, cultural sensitivity and mm-hmm. cultural responsiveness. But what I'm hearing with you is what I'm feeling too. Is that every client. To some degree, is their own culture. There's a there's a mm. cultural sensitivity, there's a personal sensitivity that we need to have. Now, is this something that uh, this sensitivity to the client is this something that we can train in? Is it a life experience thing? Is it a combination? What do you find with your teaching and with uh, when you're out with other people? How they manage?
2: You know, as a cognitive behavioral therapist, I'm biased because I do think that it is about learning new behaviors. And I do believe that it's about we could train ourselves and we could learn uh, and we educate people and we practice, we practice new behaviors. So I do believe that this is something that we can all, you know, on an individual level and then also like on a global collectivistic level, it is first really understand what works and, and what doesn't. Like in acceptance and commitment therapy, mm. uh, the, the piece of that acceptance is learning to accept all of our internal experiences. So our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations, our urges, our memories, all of our internal experiences we accept, meaning we make the space and soften up to it and, and get more comfortable with what our inner world is like. And and the commitment piece is we commit to doing a behavior. We commit to taking actions that move us towards our values, the kind of person we want to be. And the distinction is that our internal experiences are out of our control. The thoughts that that enter into my mind, the sensations, those are not in my control. But the the behaviors that I choose in those moments are always 100% in, in my control. And that's what we want to help people do is change their actions.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. these things, uh, I mean, we talk about it in the neurosciences, uh, that, that really when you're talking about the, the subcortical regions where you're getting uh, the, the amygdala and some of the limbic, uh, other limbic areas, they're bringing up uh, elements into our awareness and, and into our framework. Uh, but it's this prefrontal area, uh, we the dorsolateral, the ventralateral, and the orbitofrontal that are all in there. Uh, Interrupting, checking out, looking for correctness or incorrectness and making other decisions. So we we are organised to have the thing emerge out of us and then uh, frame it and often reframe it. Uh, which which I suggest is, mm. is what you're saying. Does
1: that make sense? I'm, how am I going, Matt? <laughs> Not just reframing, but then apply top-down control, which I think is then the very important part.
2: Yeah. Right, right. It's exactly top-down control. So we live in a society that that has taught us or, or right, sells us this message that we should be able to control a sensation in the same way that I can, you know, um, Uh, you know, my phone, like if if my phone makes me anxious, I could just pick it up and put it in the garbage. But if a thought makes me anxious, it's in me. I can't just move it around as I do external things in the world. Like our internal experience can't be maneuvered in the same way our our internal experiences are. And so, uh, and it's true in the sense that, you know, our amygdala, these are evolutionary processes, very primitive processes of fight or flight and, and learning, right? Like these systems have been kind of evolutionarily uh, set up to help us always look for threat and be safe. And then exactly our frontal cortex is then made to uh, assess and take rational action. Um, but all of these other primitive uh Places in us, I mean, those are not in our control. And those are uh, very much based in trying to find the way we're going to die, right? Catastrophizing and avoiding threat at all times.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What, 18 months ago, I can't even remember now, Richard, I was having palpitations and chest pains uh, for seemingly no reason. And it was freaking me out rather. And uh, after a number of different tests and quite some thorough tests, uh, the cardiologist and doctors were saying, yeah, actually, you've got the healthiest heart for your age group. Uh, You're you're completely healthy. And so it just, it must be uh, underlying anxiety. And once I had that schema, once I had that understanding, I could apply then top down control over the bodily sensations, it uh it dissipated. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: And this these aspects of, of um sort of anxieties, these external Things and I'm going to jump a little bit because there was something in the in some of the talking points that really fascinated me because you also look at dating culture uh, in amongst the interpersonal relationships that that you deal with. Now, personally, I'm a li- I've kind of a bit forgotten about dating culture. Although my <laughs> wife and I we like to date each other, but we don't have to go through <laughs> a lot of troubles. And there are, there are a few words that. I love, they were put there, I suppose, to, to test me uh, in, <laughs> uh, in my late 60s. Um, negging, ghosting, zombieing, and love bombing. Uh, this is the dating culture. Um, these are the problems that are involved in it. What are the difficulties? What are the, the pleasures for people looking at their dating culture?
2: Well, certainly, I think that with, Technology and and social media and the internet and and everything that that affords. um, It's much different than when when we were younger. Um, So I think that there's this way that it creates a bit of a domino effect because people are uh, behaving towards each other in this way in which everybody's more disposable or replaceable and they just ghost, they disappear, they don't respond. And we're all kind of like, little turtles. So we put our head out and we're vulnerable and we do something Right, that exposes us and tries to be intimate, and then we get hurt and we put our heads back, you know, in our shells, and it creates this domino effect. So you ghost somebody, and the next person then ghosts somebody else, and it creates this whole kind of environment where people are feeling more lonely, more insecure, um, more disposable. And then it becomes even harder for people to make plans and be consistent with one another, or, um, you know, end a relationship, like as a therapist, I I tell my clients all the time, the way that we end relationships is just as important as maintaining relationships. And what what does that mean when we're, you know, there's like a kind of avoidance, avoidance of saying goodbye, avoidance of being intimate. It's it's a little bit like we're almost intimacy phobic because when people can just be replaced or, or deleted in this way, it becomes even harder to Open up and be vulnerable. Mm, So this
0: ghosting. Sorry, now I just want. I just want to Mm. catch up. So (laughs) this ghosting is making the making the other person. ghost like uh, I'm just thinking right. is it is it anything like gaslighting or is that a different thing no
2: gaslighting gaslighting is when you cut, you make the person doubt themselves and feel uh, kind of crazy in their experience ghosting is when you just stop talking to somebody you just you block them you stop talking to them you don't say goodbye uh, you don't say why it could be after you met somebody once or it could be after being with them for three years it's not just in romantic relationships right it's just it's become more of the norm with texting and things like that to sometimes not respond uh for days or just disappear and so you could also imagine that then people become more anxious and insecure if somebody doesn't respond right away because we have a culture where people could also just disappear they could know you for a year and then disappear
1: Mm -hmm. thank you like richard dating is a long time in the past for me too so i'm <laughs> right. wondering is the is this is it more difficult in this current culture or are we just talking about human nature and it's always been like this
2: you know i could you know i could only speak from my experience with my clients and if i'm speaking to that it seems like yes it is much more difficult in this culture i think that some of the reasons are related to technology and social media and the ways that that has made us become more comfortable with vulnerability behind a screen as opposed to in person. Mm, uh, yeah. Also because of Trump and you know when our he created a bit of a gender divide and, and a lot of animosity, racial and um and so that also makes it difficult to be intimate and trusting. And then also um, another aspect is the global pandemic. I mean, I, I, I think about this global pandemic and, um, you know, it's almost like we've all had a, a global trauma together. It's a real mm. collective trauma. And when we've had a year, a year and a half of being under a pandemic where we could either kill somebody else by breathing near them or they could possibly kill us. I mean, mm. what does that do for our connections and for like our desire to meet new people and put ourselves out there. It it really goes, it goes into our schemas, right? Into our primitive brains. It's not even a conscious thing we realize.
0: Yeah, wow, really difficult landscape, yeah, and this right. this will this will affect different uh, generations or people at different stages of their life. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day uh, when someone says, "How have you gone through the the pandemic?" And I said, "Well, interestingly, uh, my wife and I looked at each other after a couple of years of this thing and said, actually, we're quite dull people. So, <laughs> right. uh, has, but in the sense that it hasn't been um, so." Uh, important for us to meet new people, to engage. We've got lots of friends, we've been around, and so on and so forth. But then when I look at some of the other people in our family at different ages, uh, there's exactly what you're saying there, particularly those in the teens, uh, late teens, and, you know, teens and early 20s of meeting people. Uh, and this is interesting, this possibility of creating a generational schema that is going to be problematic later on. Is this something you're concerned about?
2: Yeah, for sure. I, I think it is the hardest on teenagers. I mean, imagine being a teenager and, and being hooked up like that and your brain developmentally is, is needing these things, right? I mean, uh, we're not going to know the long-term impact for a while, right? Mm. I mean... You know, I'm 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 a psychologist, so in some ways I, I'm always believing, you know, in change and and that our brains are malleable and that we could get through things. So um it's not hopeless, but I think that it means that we have to acknowledge it. Like if we don't see a problem, right? If we don't acknowledge, um, you know, if we don't acknowledge what we've been through, then we can't really fix it or work on it.
0: Yes, yeah. that, that thing of post-traumatic growth. Uh, as different right. from post-traumatic uh, disorder, you know, distress, uh, and part of that, I think, comes back definitely to what what you were saying uh, when talking about the social disruptions, the the political disruptions. This the benefit that we get from having a common goal, and I think this mm-hmm. has been one of the greatest difficulties with this pandemic. We've we've had sort of two sides things in some way to to versions of the truth. And I found that very difficult to manage. Is this something you're seeing with clients yourself?
2: Yeah, I I do agree with you that um, one of the things that has made this so much worse than it could have been, at least in the United States, is this split and the divide and people going after each other all for having different opinions, um, and that certainly um, makes it a, a lot more difficult.
0: Yeah, that's uh, a trauma not, in itself, isn't it?
2: Right, right, and and it's interesting because you know Victor Frankl, uh, who wrote *Man's Search for Meaning* and *The Doctor and the Soul*, he really distinguishes between how every instance of trauma is an opportunity for post-traumatic growth. Like you could have, you know, uh, PTSD. Or you could have post-traumatic growth, which which I think is really beautiful because he says in every moment of suffering or pain, there's an opportunity to create meaning uh, and to to grow from it, to expand yourself and to move towards values and and create meaning. So I think that it, it will be really important for individuals and for us as a collective to uh, make meaning and make sense of this so that we can grow from it
1: yeah and that does seem to be very difficult in the midst of it which we still seem to be
2: that's right that's right it's it's like it, i i think that you know we haven't actually moved into the post yet right
0: no. yeah. yeah that's right
2: the yeah. dilemma some people think we have but we we haven't mm.
0: One of the other talking points. I just again jumping. I'm sorry to do that, but it's so no. interesting. All the things you've got is um, because I I recognised it and took a, a oh I went as I looked at this because it was very similar to uh, work that I've done with Ernest Rossi and his work with Milton Erickson before him, and it was it was simply a thing saying that sometimes in order to. Be able to learn how to control some of your powerful emotions, like anger, and I would imagine, you know, maybe even anxiety and and some of those things, is to actually feel more angry, is to actually get someone to feel more angry, and uh, and I know that we also have this with um, uh, and now I'm going to forget his name, which is dreadful, but a friend of mine who also encourages people to get more anxious. In uh, what they right, do in order right. to do it, what what is the, some of the work you're doing that? Because that's also involved with the CBT and the ACT work you do. How right. does that help in this process?
2: Well, I mean, uh, what you described is like a paradoxical intervention, because when somebody's really anxious and you try to get them to be more anxious, they kind of see how. It, how hard that is to do. Um, and then, and, and then they could have an experience of what it feels like to drop the struggle with the experience. Because often what happens, um, is that in our experience, it's not the actual pain that causes us so much pain. It's the struggle with that pain, that causes us so much pain. And the more we drop the struggle, the more flexibility there is with the pain. And the more we struggle with it, the the worse the pain gets. It just gets worse and worse. Uh, You know, sometimes it's better to do like, um, you know, act is very metaphorical and experiential. So sometimes it's better to do an experiential exercise to help articulate these things. I could do a little experiential exercise with that.
0: Fantastic. You're going to perform for us. Yeah. No, beautiful. No, that'd be lovely because a lot of therapists out there and they really uh, love to hear uh, specific, you know, practical, functional things we can do. So please. Go yeah. Through.
2: So so if we, this is like a, a typical ACT metaphor and there's a lot of metaphors for this kind of thing and I'll tune it up a little bit. But if we say that, let's say both of your headphones, right, the, these headphones you're wearing are very sensitive polygraph machines. And so as long as you're hooked up to these headphones, I'm able to tell any physiological change that happens to your body. Like if yeah if you're, if your okay. hands get shaky or your heart starts racing like I'll know like this, it's so sensitive. So if you feel any tiny bit of anxiety, I'll know.
0: Actually, Matt and I both sat up straight. (laughs) 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 Right.
2: Just from that
0: metaphor, just from that, we've already started. So we're with you.
2: So then, so then I'll say, as long as I'm in this interview, whatever you do, don't get anxious. Do not get anxious. What do you think would happen?
0: I'm not thinking Uh, of the purple cow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Heart rate's going up. Yep. <laughs> right, right.
2: So now yeah. we'll imagine. We'll imagine. I'm going to say there's a bomb hooked up to this, and cool. if it senses that you're anxious, it is going to explode. You can't get anxious. Whatever you do, it will explode if you get anxious. Don't get anxious.
1: All right. I'm gone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and actually, what I found was, I was, I, uh, I started altering my breathing. I tried to, I tried to do something to, right. uh, to calm
2: myself. All right. And usually I do this in person. So I say, I have a gun. If you get anxious, I'm going to shoot. So don't, don't get anxious. And then we notice that all of our physiological experiences are out of our control. And most of us would get shot. But if I say to you now, I say to you, Oh, give me your red pen or I'll shoot you. What would you do? I, I, here's your pen. <laughs> <laughs> you'd you'd give me the pen.
0: Yeah. If, yes, if the,
2: I would say, give, give me, give me this, uh, this uh, piano. Mail me this piano, or I'm going to shoot you. What would you do?
1: <laughs> Question. I'd have to try and talk you down on that one because I, I love my piano. Uh huh.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, then you'd get shot. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, what if I said I said I would go? Uh, give me one of your books, or I'll shoot.
1: What would you do? Have the book right yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and so this is a great example of noticing that um your physiological experiences were completely out of your control but your behaviors were completely in your control right so even if you're anxious at 110 percent, if yep. i say give me the book you'll give me the book if i say dance like a chicken you'll dance like a chicken you know, if i say give me you know um your glasses you'd give we still have a hundred percent control over our actions regardless mm-hmm of how strong our emotions are. Yeah. But we do not have the same control over our in, in our internal experiences as we mm-hmm. do over objects in the world. Sure. And so when I work with clients, I let them know, I'm not here to work with you to help you not have these experiences. Mm-hmm. What I am here to help you is notice when you're turning the gun on yourself. When are you going, I shouldn't be anxious. I shouldn't feel guilty. I shouldn't be scared. I shouldn't feel this. And notice that as soon as you turn the gun and you tell yourself not to have an experience, that experience starts growing and growing and gets worse and worse. And what I want to help you do is lower the gun, start being kind with yourself, noticing where in your body you're feeling something. What is that like? What color does it have? What shape does it have? building compassion to it, like putting your hand on your heart and saying, it makes sense that I feel scared right now. Of course I feel scared. Mm-hmm. And noticing yeah. that when we have this compassion and when we're willing to have our internal experiences, we have even more control over the actions we take.
0: Right. So
2: um, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm anxious and then I'm spending a lot of money or I'm yelling at my friends and I'm saying, you're all jerks, then I get even more and more anxious because of my behaviors but if we if we could choose the behaviors we want to do under this stress, then what happens is we then end up having more flexibility with these experiences. We don't continue to do the behaviors that makes make us feel worse and worse and worse
0: yeah yeah I can turn around, and get the book, send you the book, so I can do that behavior which will stop the 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 terribleness of the threat even while my anxiety is still continuing. So that emotion I can't, I can't simply that's doing that, but I can do this action. And so maybe I can do another action which starts Correct. to go inwards. Mm. Now, yeah. Now just yeah. a
1: disclaimer for our listeners, we're not suggesting that in therapy you pull out a handgun <laughs> and
0: point <laughs> it at your client. Yes. Uh, when, that, when we, when uh, we were I, doing this, it was all done with fingers. That's right. <laughs> well, for those who are listening, because they'll be don't, listening on the podcast. Yeah, no, don't
2: no. don't tell them about the machete I brought to the podcast. No podcast, <laughs> that's, that's,
1: that's, no podcast yeah. hosts were injured, injured. in this.
2: Recording.
0: <laughs> and, um, no. It's a lovely, but a very it's a confronting exercise. But sometimes we need to uh, we need to do this. And I, I, I know I've got a, a couple of clients at the moment, and there's one that I'm extremely gentle with. Uh, and it's very important i'm respecting the culture in in, in that, that client's framework but another one i'm actually entirely reactive with uh, right and that's also to do with her history uh that what she she has come to accept anything so if she's rude to me i i'd just shut it down like her dad uh, i'm old enough to be it and it's really interesting how As a therapist, I feel entirely reasonable, I'm not sure comfortable is the word, but reasonable to be doing both behaviors. And I certainly wouldn't imagine swapping them or wouldn't make the mistake. And I think this is what you're suggesting.
2: Well, I think also that's a great example of what I mean by neutrality, right, is that you're not coming from your own actions and your own biases, but you're letting the clients guide you. And so in some way, that's a great example of neutrality. But the exercise, it's like, I have a lot of clients that say things like, I can't, I can't do this because I'm anxious. I can't do this because I'm tired. And in the reality, you can, your behaviors are just as much in your control, regardless of your experience. So for example, in that first example I gave you, if somebody has a core belief of abandonment, as soon as all of those sensations and feelings of being abandoned comes up, they may do the behaviors of clinging, seeking reassurance, going, why aren't you calling me? Where have you been? You don't love me. And then the more they do those behaviors, the more likely they are to get abandoned. If they could have that experience, make space for the abandonment, soothe it, have all of the internal experiences that come with abandonment, then they could choose not to do the behaviors that are more likely to cause more and more abandonment.
0: Right. Yeah, these yeah. Are the, these are the processes and these lovely books, you know, written with some other authors, uh, which is great because Matt and I write together. We've got something coming out next year. We love doing that. So there's that acceptance and commitment therapy. Now the earlier one was for interpersonal problems, and then the more recent one for couples, and then that interpersonal problem workbook, which is really terrific because they're great books to get. What have we missed? Is there something we sort of better wrap up? We've kind of got to the mm-hmm. the end of our time. We know people drop off for about 40 minutes or so, um, where can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you in this, uh, the Bay Area and all this wonderful work you're doing there?
2: Um, you could visit my website at www.bayareacbtcenter.com or cbtonline.com, uh, or or you could find my books on Amazon, uh, or you could email me at info at
0: Beautiful. Okay. That, that's lovely. And, and we'll have uh, links on, uh, for everything on our show notes. And, uh, Matt, I think we've had a, a beautiful opportunity here with, with Abby. It was great.
1: Fantastic. Dr. Abigail Lev, it's been wonderful. Great to get to know you.
2: Yes, I had a lot of fun. So thank you for having me, and I hope to, to chat with you two again.
0: Beautiful. So uh, bye-bye for now. Okay, see you later. See you. Well, that was great. Man, I, I, she was nice. Um yeah, she, yeah. she was really interesting, but but I, a strong, clear-headed sort of descriptions of the work she's doing and where she's going. I, I love seeing that in in both a a therapist and also someone teaching. You know, it's yeah. Doing,
1: yeah, and and a really good reminder too about you know this uh, toxic positivity as she as she puts it. Um, it yeah, it
0: wasn't really, that interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah, wow. and I must say, you know, I'm I've been guilty of being overly positive when I should be neutral, and uh, and so good reminder.
0: Well, I uh, hopefully this is what my work on responsiveness mm. is all is going to be um, bringing out. So we're getting closer and closer to to getting accepted for the PhD. So we're working on, on all that, but now uh, Matt, we do, we've got to go, but do. everybody don't forget. If you love what we do come into our, the science of become a subscriber with the Academy. We have, literally a thousand hours of material that Mm. you can access engage with we have videos we've got written material we've got uh, certificates uh, education certificates all the way through there there is so much that we uh, are providing as a resource and we'd love you to share in it including our new documentaries the first one gut brain access that's out now which is fantastic Mm
1: Absolutely. We have a huge uh, resource. We've been publishing since 2013. Uh, As we'd say over here, there's more than you could poke a stick at.
0: Yes, that's right. So if you you poke sticks, that's right. Uh, That's very good. All
1: right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, and we will
0: catch you next time. And bye for me. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, Go to the science of